0: Good morning, Transit Church. How's everyone doing today? We good? Amen. Good to see you all. If I haven't met you yet, my name is Nick, one of the pastors here at the church. As that bumper showed, uh, guess where we're at this morning? First Peter. Continuing our sermon series, going through First Peter. It's been a great series so far, huh? You guys been loving it? Yeah, it's been great. Uh, we're going to be in chapter 4, verses 7 through 11. Chapter 4, 7 through 11. We're going to start our time together by reading God's Word out loud together. 1 Peter 4, 7-11, through 11, verses will be on the screen. Help me read this. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory, dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we're just overwhelmed with your love for us this morning. You are not cheap, you are not miserly with your love towards us. So we come before you with mouths full of praise and thanksgiving, saying, thank you. Thank you for your love. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for forgiveness. Thank you, Jesus, for salvation. Thank you for reconciliation. You're such a good father. And you speak to us, and you've spoken to us in your word. So we pray, come Holy Spirit. And with the words spoken, be your words and not my words, Lord Jesus. Would you have your way with our hearts and our minds and our souls today? Lord Jesus, have your way. Jesus, would you be glorified? Would you be magnified in our hearts and in our midst today? And up here would I decrease and pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. All right, well, hey, the title of my talk this morning is End Time Ethics, and the reason uh, for that is in verse 7, Peter begins our text with a pretty bold, might I suggest even kind of dangerous statement when he says, the end of all things is at hand, right? Nobody run out of the room, go buy an RV and some ammo, don't do that yet. Uh, Peter begins that with, with that begins our text with that statement. And at first glance, like we're two thousand years roughly after uh, you know this, this letter was written, and we might think, "Sorry, Peter, that was a swing and a miss, bro." The end is not at hand. We're 2,000 years prior, and the last thing I checked is that all things are not ended. We're still, you know, we're still doing our thing. And uh, the purpose of why Peter is sharing this when he's talking about the end of all things being at hand is he's not making an apocalyptic prediction, okay? He's not making it up like, hey, in two weeks, on this date, the, all things are coming to an end, so liquidate all your assets and buy these dry goods I'm selling so I can make a ton of money which some people are still doing on TV today. Um, He's not doing that. He's not making an apocalyptic prediction. In fact, what he's doing is giving an apostolic exhortation to the church. He's exhorting the church, hey, this is how you are to live in light of the fact that the end of all things is at hand. And this is what he means when he says all things are at hand. In the Greek, that at hand, we we get the connotation of, of a steady approach. Okay? A steady approach of something or someone. So to rephrase what Peter is saying here, he's saying that the end of all things is steadily approaching. Steadily approaching. So the end he's talking about is the second coming of Jesus Christ when he comes on the white horse with a sword in his mouth and the tattoo on his thigh to to fully and finally rescue his bride and defeat uh, the enemies of God, to usher in God's God's just and righteous reign over the world, that that day is coming. No matter what your eschatology is, whether you're pre-mill, post-mill, ah-mill, a little bit of mill, a lot of mill, whatever mill you are, whatever your end time view is, we can all agree Jesus came once and he's promised he's coming again, right? And um, what Peter is, 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 is suggesting to the church here, he's saying, hey, just a heads up, all the major events in our God's great plan of salvation have, have pretty much already taken place. Okay, let's list them. The Messiah has come. He was crushed for our iniquities. Jesus was crucified. Jesus rose from the grave, and then he ascended into heaven, and now he's seated at the right hand of the Father. Oh, and by the way, in Joel 2, it says, in the last days, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. Guess what happens in Acts 2? God's spirit is poured out just fulfilling what happens in Joel 2, the prophecy in Joel 2. So early church, if you have an Advent calendar full of all the chocolates, but it's a second coming calendar, it's a second coming of Jesus' calendar, what Peter is getting at is there's not a whole lot of chocolate left in that calendar. All right? And simply put, Jesus Christ's first coming set the countdown for his second coming. For his second coming. And we don't know when that is, but we know it's com- coming. And what Peter, I feel like, is suggesting for us today and what we're gonna be talking a lot in our time together is that what Peter's saying, if you listen closely, if you put your ear to the ground, you should be able to hear the the sound of the gallop of the white horse. That was my best attempt at making a sound of a gallop, all right, I need some like half-a-coconuts up here to uh, whatever. And where, and where, we, where we might, we, where we don't understand is the pace of the gallop, right? Maybe it's, still, maybe it's still steady, right? Or maybe it's... Or for some of us, as we're, we've been living through 2020, maybe we think it's, you know, like whatever, whatever it is. What we do, what, what, what we're talking about when we talk about end-time ethics is living our lives in the context of the sound of the gala, of the white horse, the steady approach of Jesus. Jesus fully and finally ushering in God's good and pure and righteous reign and defeating fully and finally all evil, the kingdom of darkness, and everything that is vile and opposed to God's rule and reign. And so the first kind of end-time exhortation that Peter gives is in verse 7. He says, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled. Therefore, be sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. And if I were to rephrase this, in a way I believe Peter is saying, in a way is saying, listen, the end of all things is at hand. Don't panic. Don't freak out. Don't live in fear. Let's have sobriety of mind and sobriety of body because this command is needed in the context of any exhortation that the end is near because often we will live our lives in uh, well, hey, the end is at hand, so eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. We talked about that last week. Jeff talked about kind of the drunken licentiousness of, you know, t- the past has sufficed for that, right, and what we talked about last week. But I think for the sake of our sermon today, what we're going to be focused on is, is that the end is at hand, and what I want to address in, in, in for this portion of our text is the fact that the, there's been fear that has welled up in the church in, in 2020. Lots of fear, lots of anxiety, lots of panic. Um, even in our minds have gotten intoxicated and drunk, with panic. So we can't think and act clearly and rationally. And uh, the evidence of that would just be the fact that maybe some of us are still using the toilet paper we bought nine months ago. You tracking with me? Right? Like just, just the opposite of self-control sober-minded is sober-minded as I give you three words, 2020, COVID, toilet paper. Right? What happened, right? Guilty as charged. I bought, I bought a truckload of toilet paper, okay? I'm not, I'm, like it ran out. I'm so, but anyways, like if we're honest with ourselves, for, on varying degrees, we have allowed, as the body of Christ, when, when our good Father says, do not fear, I am with you, we've allowed our circumstances to, to cause us to lose sobriety of mind, and we get kind of drunk and, and intoxicated in our man, minds with panic and fear. And um, what's interesting is, is Peter is saying, is, hey, listen, the end of all things is at hand, don't panic. And then he links that with this. He links it with prayer. He says, so that you can pray. Be self-controlled, be sober-minded for the sake of, of your prayers, because when we're in a state of panic, see, in, in panic mode, we disconnect from God. It's a self-focus, we think we're on our own, and we have to go run and make sure that we survive, and, and we get through this on our own. We have an orphan mindset, we believe that God is not with us, God is not for us, God hasn't promised good to, to us, right? It's, it's a panic, is a disconnect from God, but in prayer, that's when we connect with God. And we realize, we're not alone. We have a father, he's on the throne. And he's in control, and he has promised to work out all things, good or bad, for his glory and for my good. And, 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 and just you know, for the record, if, if the church of Jesus Christ in 2020 every day woke up just praying the Lord's Prayer, the very first line I think would, 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 would help us quench the fear that's rising up in our hearts. Our Father. We got a good Father. Hallowed be your name. Your name be great. Your will be done. Your kingdom come. My life is not about this nation. Your life, my life is about your kingdom. Have your way with this nation. May your kingdom, may your kingdom in my life and in this nation take priority over my political alliances or, 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 or whatever, but your kingdom come, your will be done. If I have needs, I have needs, you've given me a free pass to ask you, give, give us this daily bread. Help me to forgive the trolls on the internet that are trolling my posts, you know, or whatever it is. Help me to forgive them, to walk in forgiveness and keep us from, like, like if we pray that every day, Man, we would be unshakable as the church, right? Connecting with God, abiding in his love. And uh, my only exhortation before I go to my next thing is, um, church, let's post less and let's pray more in 2020. And maybe if we pray more, our posts will change. And it'll actually be about Jesus and the redemption and the hope that he offers. And so let's, let's do that, and and we're all guilty of this, right? But if we're posting more than we're praying, that's a problem. We should be praying more than we're posting. Let me just put that out there. Let me just put that out there. Post less, let's pray more. That's the first thing that Peter points us to is be self-controlled, sober-minded, so that you can pray more and connect with your God, particularly at the end of the age when that day is drawing near. And then the next thing I want to highlight is that throughout Scripture, one of the chief end-time prayers that the church of Jesus Christ is to be praying is found in Revelation 22, 17, and verse 20. This is the last chapter of the Bible, and some of the last verses before the close of the Bible. And this is, this is a, a great end-time prayer, prayerful anticipation, invitation of the church to Jesus. And it says this, The Spirit and the Bride say, Come, Lord Jesus. The Spirit and the Bride. Say come, And then verse 20, he, Jesus, who testifies to, th- to these things, what does Jesus say at the end of, of, of the Bible that he's, he's, he's given us? Surely I am coming soon. And what's John's response? Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Come swiftly. Come quickly. Do not spare the horses. Come as fast as you can. Yes. And um, so we see that the end time church is not to abound in fear, or panic or or drunken licentiousness, but in prayerful anticipation and prayerful watchfulness, eager expectations for our Savior's return that changes our present attitudes and actions. And this would encourage the early church. Remember the context of our letter in First Peter is that the church was facing persecution and suffering. And what Peter is saying is, listen. Jesus is on the way. He's coming soon. It might not be in your generation. It might be generations down uh, the road. But you have to listen to the sound of the gallop, and it's, like, it's, it's the sound of like a black hawk uh, chopper coming for your rescue. You're in the height of the battle. You're getting, you know, overwhelmed by the, the the forces of darkness in your world, and you're confused. But listen to the hum. The chopper's coming, right? Listen. Let that encourage you. Let that encourage you. And for a lot of us, who here, who here, Amazon Prime member? Anyone at Amazon Prime? Probably all of you, right? Okay, that's par for the course, okay? You know, as well as I do, when you order that that precious gift that you've wanted forever, maybe someone gives you a gift card and you buy it, and and then you get that email, surely your package is coming soon. You know, your package is on the way. Um, What do you do? There's, There's anticipation, right? You check the door, you check the mailbox, right? There's this eager expectation, and then, and then you get a box, and then you open it up, but it's, it's your wife's, and you're like, dang it, I don't, I don't need clothes. I wanted my, you know, whatever, right? And you know, that's, that's the anticipation we have, and we ought to have for the coming of our Lord Jesus, that the church is so in love with Jesus that we want nothing more, and nothing would excite us more, that when that moment comes, when our faith becomes sight, and we see Jesus face to face, and until that moment, our prayer should be, come Lord Jesus come quickly. Your church is calling for you to come. You are not an unwanted guest when you show up. You're not an unwanted guest. We've been preparing. We've been waiting. We've been preparing ourselves for this day through prayerful watchfulness and anticipation. And then Peter goes to verse 8, and he says, above all, Keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. And verse 9, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. And what we see, obviously, throughout Scripture, and and then in the context of this, one of the the supreme end-time ethic is not survival, but it's sacrificial love. Matthew 22, greatest commandment, love God. With everything you got, love your neighbor as yourself. First Corinthians 13, the greatest of these is love. But we need to ask ourselves, why is this command to, to keep loving one another fervently and earnestly? Well, Why is this necessary, especially in the last days? What Scripture teaches us is that in the last days, there's going to be a massive famine. There's going to be a massive deficit. There's going to be a massive shortage of love. Uh, 2 Timothy 3, 1-4. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous. Do we live in slanderous times? Yes, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Matthew 24, 12, Jesus talking about the last days. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. The love of many will grow cold. And so what scripture teaches, and what Peter is exhorting the church to, is that, listen, in the last days, even though love will be steadily decreasing in the world around us, lawlessness, right, love, like love will be decreasing in the church, there should be a steady, fervent increase of love in the church and through the church to the world around us, that in the midst of scarcity of love, the church needs to be abounding in love because the church is that city set on a hill which is to be shining brightly with the love of Jesus in the midst of a dark, love-starved world. And you might be saying, well, Nick, man, how is it possible for us, the church, to be abounding in love when there's a scarcity of love in the world around us? And my response would be would be a simple question: Well, who is the source of the church's love? Is there ever a day that we are not loved? Is there ever a day where the fountain of God's love, which flows from our Savior's heart to our hearts, is quenched and stopped? Every second of every day for all of eternity, there is a river of everlasting love that flows from our Savior's veins to his bride, the church. So it doesn't matter what's happening in the world around us, we have access to that love because the source of our love is a never-ending, uh, a never-ending source of life. We're sitting on a stockpile, a warehouse, an eternal, everlasting well, a fountain that never runs dry, never runs dry. And so therefore, there shouldn't be any scarcity of fervent love in the church because the wellspring of love that the church draws from is never ending. And, and the only reason it is possible, the only reason it is remotely possible for us to obey the command to earnestly love one another and keep earnestly loving one another is when we come to understand, know, and believe, and receive that we are earnestly loved by God. We can't, Jesus is not a cruel taskmaster who starves us of love and then commands, and now you go give others something you don't have. Jesus dies to show us and to give us the love of God for all of eternity, and he says, now just go what you've already received. Just go and give what you've already received. And so uh, 1 John four nineteen says this. It's a beautiful principle, simple principle we love because he first loved us. We love because he first loved us. We are able to love because we're first recipients of love. And that flow of love never stops. But the problem, the problem is for us in the church, is that often we don't feel that. We don't walk in that. And why is it that? I think one of the things that um, I've, been, I've been camping out on recently um, in the season with conversations I've had with fellow believers is often, you know, obviously the problem is not that we're not passionately loved by God. The problem in the church is that we refuse to believe it. We refuse to believe it and then receive it and operate out of that position, that identity of one dearly loved by God. And um, the reason for that is often I would say we live our lives before the cross instead of after the resurrection, And let me illustrate that for you. Um, And and this is just this just resonates on my heart because oftentimes I'll hear Christians talk about themselves, you know, grabbing coffee or whatever, and I'll get like anger kind of wells up in me. Like like if my daughter was talking about herself the way that, that we in the church talk about ourselves, like I would be I would be concerned. I would be kind of be mad. Like, hey, do you know who you are? That's not who you are. Don't talk about yourself like that. Don't talk about yourself like that. In the church, we often think that sanctification is the process of filleting ourselves verbally, of shaming ourselves, condemning ourselves, that that's actually sanctifying, and it's not biblical. It's not. Let me illustrate this for you. Oftentimes, you might be here and you say, I'm just a sinner. I'm a sinner. When scripture would say, if you've ever read any of Paul's letters, how does he author them? To the saints at Ephesus. Romans to those called to be saints. He, he does not right to Ephesus. Hey, you bunch of, of, of sinners, you know, like I condemn you and here's why. No, he says to the saints at Ephesus. And, and do I still sin? Do we still sin? Absolutely. Is my core identity still that I'm a sinner? Absolutely not. I am in Christ Jesus. The book's are paid, my debt's been paid, it's been nailed to the cross. there's no record of debt. that's not my core identity anymore. You might be here today and you think that I am a wretch. No, you're not. you're royalty. First Peter 2, we are a royal priesthood, the church, royal priesthood. Why? Because we're, we're the king's kids. Our father rules the world and we are going to inherit that rulership with him. We are royalty you're not a wretch. Oh, I'm just a piece of garbage. I'm a piece of trash. You are God's treasured possession. He crushed his son to purchase you. That's how crazy he is about you. 1 Peter 2, a people for his own possession. You're God's treasured possession, the apple of his eye in Christ Jesus. I'm unlovable. You and I are the beloved of God, a precious son, a beloved daughter, Oh, but Nick, you don't know what I, what, even what I've done this past week. I'm filthy. You are clothed in the righteous robes of Jesus Christ, and his love has covered a multitude of your sins and mine. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. And oftentimes, we see this play out in our quiet times, where um, something that the Lord's been putting on my heart is, is this idea of we approach the quiet time Christianity model, which, which we should be having quiet times. Just got to reframe it in, in, in certain ways. In regards to, it's what I do. Not a first understanding that the only reason it's possible to have a quiet time is because God is a God of love and He invites us into love every time we open His book and go to Him in prayer and worship, right? That He is waiting, that love is waiting. It's not about us, it's not about the, you know, like spiritual disciplines or I need to have a quiet time to be a good Christian. For us, what we need to be daily seeking, and John, according to John 15, the words of Christ, Jesus says, in John fifteen nine, what Jesus says is, and this is in the context of that famous passage of abide in me uh, as the vine uh, to uh, the branches for apart from me can do nothing. John 15, 9, Jesus says this, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. Remain in my love. And so when every day as we go to God to have quiet times, we need to say, hey, I'm going to have a quiet time, but what, also what I'm doing primarily is I am going to abide in the love of my precious Savior who's waiting for me. He loves to hear from me. He loves to abide in me. Why else would he? If Jesus didn't want to spend time with us and to have us like abide in him, why would he give us this invitation for all times? All time, abide in my love. And, and then the exhortation that flows next from this, you know, is uh, as Christ's love has covered the multitude of our sins, we in love are to go and do the same. We might be asking, uh, well, what does it mean that love covers a multitude of sins, as Peter is talking about here? Keep loving one another earnestly, love covers a multitude of sins. Well, I think the best example of this, obviously, is Jesus, Um, but uh, is John 8 and the woman caught in adultery, right? You all know the story. These Pharisees who knew their Bibles, they knew the Torah better than you and I did. They actually memorized the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament. They knew their scriptures. They didn't know the God of love who inspired the scriptures. And so they find this woman caught in adultery. They drag her. And when, listen, when sin encounters sin, when religion encounters sin, it's going to seek to not cover sin. It's going to seek to expose, humiliate, and bring condemnation. When love, Jesus, encounters sin, what does he do? He seeks to cover. He bends his knee low. He takes the attention off of the humiliation of the woman caught in adultery from all the Pharisees who are trying to publicly condemn her. And what Jesus does is he says to her after he owns all the Pharisees and says, hey, he without sin, throw the first stone. They all leave. And then Jesus looks at the woman who's, who's extremely embarrassed, probably trembling with fear. She's about to face, a, face death. Jesus saved her life. And he goes, does no one condemn you? They want to to, religion, when sin encounters sin, you want to bring condemnation. Jesus offers redemption. Love offers redemption. Jesus says, I don't, I don't condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. Sin is not, Jesus doesn't, Jesus doesn't just like say, hey, that adultery thing, just keep doing that. He says, no, no, I don't condemn you, but I want to change you. And, and, and I think for us, what we see here, what this looks like, when it, what love looks like, in contrast to sin, is this. Sin focuses solely on what people have done. You have done this, we condemn this, and we judge this. Love, the love of Jesus, focuses on what this person could become when Jesus grabs a hold of their heart, right? Like, everyone's got a, everyone's got a bad history, right? Right? And what, what we need to focus on in love is people's destiny. Not where they've been, not what they are, but what they can become in Christ Jesus. That's redemption. That's redemption. And that's what it looks like uh, in, in, our, in our relationships, in our marriages, and, and in, in our witness to those who are uh, completely uh, out of the fold of God and living a life of, of, of sin and separation from God. They're, they're lost. They don't know the fountain of everlasting love that's available to them. Love covers a multitude of sins. It does It does... Society, no good to just to, to, to heap condemnation upon people without offering them the hope of Jesus, the hope of redemption that only Jesus can offer them. You see someone stuck in the mud, you don't go, oh, you're an idiot, you got stuck in the mud. You should pay for that. You say, hey, I know a guy who can catch you out of the mud. Let's talk about that. Don't keep driving in the mud, but let's talk about that. So that's what that looks like, love covering a multitude of sin. Moving on, verse 9. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. I love how or immediately after love, Peter is talking here about opening up your your homes to those, uh, inviting them into the comfort, the shelter, and the warmth that is found in your homes. And historically, the early church we know uh, met house to house, and then also primarily hospitality was mission critical, because you have traveling missionaries who wouldn't want to stay at an inn. Inns were like really bad places to stay. You could get like robbed or stabbed or whatever. So hospitality was mission critical for the spread of the gospel, believers opening up their homes and kind of having first century Airbnbs, okay? So hospitality was something that they were already abounding in. How do we know this? Because the command that Peter gives is not, hey, start showing hospitality. He just frames it. I love the realism here. He goes, show hospitality. Keep showing hospitality. Just don't complain about it, you know? Like, hey, this is, and and honestly, with being a Community groups, if you've hosted community groups and towards the end of your group, week in, week out, you're hosting the group, maybe we've all been there, right? We've all been there. Maybe we've thought some thoughts of like, oh man, they didn't take off their their shoes, my floors are dirty, that kid's denting my drywall again. (laughs) Community group started at six, it's past midnight, what's going on? They're still lingering, you know? And uh, the best way to counter hospitality with grumbling is the Gospel. Is understanding God's hospitality to us, right? That God has opened the door to His 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 home for us forever. Say, come and dine with me. Hey, hey, come come in. You can wear your shoes. I'm gonna I'm gonna get down and if, if your feet are dirty, Jesus gets down and he washes your feet, right? And then and then the way we enter, right? Jesus uh the prepares the table before us of his grace and his mercy that he lavishes upon us every day. His mercies are new every morning. And then when we tarry till midnight, we come, uh, we're, we're, that, we're that squeaky wheel just pouring out our complaints to God and our woes to God, and he loves it and he listens and he, he hosts us without grumbling. He's invited us. And so that, that frames and that shapes, hey, God has given me this gift of, of, of eternal comfort and shelter in the house of God. And now this house that I have whether big or small, is going to be just the little outpost of of that heavenly home that he's prepared for me. And um, verses 10 through 11, we're going to slowly wrap up here. Peter continues now to talk about spiritual gifts, and he says this, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And so real quick, the gifts that Peter is talking about are the spiritual gifts. Uh, we did. I'm not going to. I don't have too much time here to dive really deep into spiritual gifts, but we did a sermon series last year through First Corinthians. If you want more information, a better uh, in-depth kind of study of that, go listen to some of those those sermons, particularly on First uh, Corinthians 12 through 14. But simply put, spiritual gifts. Uh, the definition would be this: spiritual gifts are God Himself gifting us individually to operate through us to edify His church and glorify His name. It is God himself gifting us to operate through us to edify his church and glorify his name. And there's primarily kind of, if we were to categorize gifts, this is kind of helpful, and again, we talked about this last year, to help us categorize what these gifts are, there's skills gifts and there's manifestation gifts, right? Skills gifts are like just naturally what we're skilled to do. Some of us are very gifted administrators. Some of us are very gifted with, you know, Audiovisuals, visuals production, media team type of stuff. Some of us are just gifted with teaching, so on and so forth. Those are skills gifts. And then what we see in script, there's scripture, uh, there, there's also manifestation gifts that God gives us, and that's when God, Holy Spirit, operates through us to bless others and glorify his name. And those gifts will be known as like prophecy or healing, words of knowledge, words of wisdom, so on and so forth. I don't have much time to go into that, and I probably just raised the truckload of questions just addressing that. But uh Anyways, moving on, the, 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 the attitudes I want to focus on, because what Peter's doing here is I think he wants us to have the right attitude and actions in regards to the gifts God gives us, and in the early church, to kind of have a mission-critical, end-time, ethic mindset to why God has gifted us. And the first thing, there's three attitudes I'm going to look at in regards to the spiritual gifts that God gives us. And the first attitude that I think we need to have in approaching and earnestly desiring more of the spiritual gifts to be at work in our lives is, uh, is humble gratitude, humble gratitude. Verse 10, Peter says, as each has received a gift. And often, the reason I wanna focus on this is often when discussing the gifts of the Spirit, You'll read books about you. he will hear sermons. But, but I've never encountered us stopping and thanking God for gifts, for the gift, for the giver, thanking God for, for, for giving good gifts. Often our focus is on ourselves, and we rush to discover what our gift is rather than pausing and saying, thank you, God, that you're a God who gives us gifts, who gives us skills, who gives us even manifestation gifts, spiritual gifts to bless and build and edify and, and exhort the church. Thank you, God, that you're generous and you're gracious God, and, and oftentimes it's a self-focus rather than a God-focus on the gift. So first we need to thank God rather than rush to the gift. And I wouldn't, if you want to discover what your gift is, my encouragement to you, don't, don't rush to an online gifting test. Um, I would, I would, I would, what I would encourage you to do is start serving each other. Start serving one another. If someone needs prayer, start praying for them and see what happens. If someone needs service, start serving them. If, if you have an opportunity to teach, start teaching, and your gifting will be identified in community. As we first obey the command to love, gifting will be identified in community. But what we learn in our text in verse 10 is that each of us in the body of Christ, we have received a gift from God or gifts from God. Um, and 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 the bottom line is this: is that if God didn't give us these gifts, we would never possess them in the first place. So that shatters any pride that we could have, where we try to identify ourselves with our gifting. If God didn't give it, I would never possess it. So, so thank you, God, for gifting that to me. Now I'll steward it for your good, for for your glory, and the good of others. But what I want to focus on as well, in regards to humble gratitude is this, is that we need to thank God for the fact that in the kingdom of God, nobody rides the bench. In the kingdom of God, everybody gets to play. If everybody's been given skates, I'm a hockey player, sorry, skates and you know, a helmet and a jersey and a stick, and they've all got different positions, then nobody gets to ride the bench. Hey, get out there. We need someone on defense. Get out there. We need someone in the net. Get out there. We need somebody on offense. Get out there. We, get, we need to go, church. We've all been gifted in 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 all these different ways. And often uh, we don't like the gift, or often shame or feel will will keep us from the gift. So we'll shelve the gift, right? I have a hockey stick in my office. Thank you, Robert Meehoe, for this uh, hockey stick that was signed by all the capitals. Um, But hockey sticks aren't meant to just be put on walls, right? They're to be played, they're to be on the ice. There's there's passes that need to be made from that hockey stick. And often for fear, this hockey stick on my wall has no puck marks, it's got no skate marks, it's, got, it's just pristine and nice and neat because it's been shelved, it hasn't been used. And oftentimes out of fear, we shelve our gift for maybe just laziness or fear of failure or, 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 or whatever, but those gifts are given not to be shelved, but to be utilized for the kingdom of God. And uh, we need to realize is that, hey man, thank you God that we're not passive observers in your kingdom, but you've all invited us to participate in advancing your kingdom. So th- humble gratitude. Thank you, God, that you give gifts. Now help me identify where you've gifted me so I can, I can get in the game if I feel like I've been on the bench for a while. Second attitude that we need to adopt that Peter tells us to adopt is selfless stewardship. Selfless stewardship. Verse 10, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Selfless stewardship is is essentially the entire Christian life. It's everything that we're called to do is steward the grace that has been given to us. Selfless stewardship is essentially this. What I have received from God surely is not just for me and about me. What I have received from God is surely not just for me and about me. And that's what stewarding is. Stewarding is simply sharing that which God has entrusted to us. And this is the entire Christian life, right? If God has given us love in Christ, then we're called to steward that love in how we share it and how we serve others. If God has um, given us a a house, we are called to share that. We're called to steward the house that he's given us for the good of others, for the glory of His. If God has gifted us with certain giftings and skills, we are to share that with others for their good and for God's Glory. And the beautiful part about this is that when it is God's gift and not our own, it's not our choice whether or not we get to shelve it. We are called to steward it. And I was talking with a, a dear brother in Christ a couple of weeks ago, and there's just a strong gift of leadership, I feel like, on, a, on his life and, and a strong gift of, of, of leading men in, in, in his life. And I just feel God's calling on him, and he's sensing that too, and he's pressing into that. And um, as I was talking to him, there was lots of, of talk about fear and and doubt and, you know, insecurity that we all wrestle with when we when we step into using the giftings God has given us. And I said, it's not about you and your gifting. It's not about you and your calling. It's about everybody else on the other side of you giving the Lord your yes. It's about everybody else, the truckload of people, the generations that will be impacted by you giving the Lord your yes. The Lord gifts you and the Lord calls you It's not about you, and it's honestly not your choice. You salute, you say, yes, sir, where do I sign, where do I go, right? That's what it's about, selfless stewardship and others' mindset, a mindset of others. And this is what we see Paul uh, talk to uh, Timothy about in 1 Timothy 4, 14. He says, he, he encourages Timothy, he says, don't neglect the gift, Timothy, that was given to you. Don't neglect the gift that was given to you. Fan that into flame. Hone that. Multiply that gift. Steward that gift. Because, because when you neglect it, the body is edified. If the gifts are given for building up the body and you shelve that, then there's people who are being encouraged and built up through you neglecting that gift. Through you neglecting that gift. So, so don't neglect that gift. We're called to steward what God has entrusted to us. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. The third attitude is full reliance upon God. So we've looked at humble gratitude, selfless stewardship. But as we press into operating the gifts God has given us, we need to have a humble, total, full dependence on God as we step out. Into those gifts. So verse 11, what does Peter say? He says, if anyone's going to speak, he's going to speak the oracles of God, whoever serves as one who's going to serve by the strength that God supplies. And so what we learn here is God not only gives the gift, but then he empowers us to effectively use it. And often in the Christian life, um, the problem isn't necessarily that we shelve our giftings and our skills in advancing the kingdom of God, we shelve the giver of the gifts in the process. Does that make sense? So we'll just say, we'll have a quick quiet time, five minutes, thank you, Jesus, and then boom, go. Fully dependent on the flesh to operate in the gifting God has given us to go advance the world rather than full total dependence and reliance upon the Lord in operating. In, in, in his strength. And that's a conundrum of pastoral ministry or any ministry in general is this, is that the very thing we set out to do is impossible unless God does the work. The very thing that we want to see happen, the kingdom of God come, is only possible if God does all the work. Because I, as your pastor, I can't sanctify anybody's soul, I can't bring salvation to anyone. That's the job description of Jesus, right? And so it has to be his words, his strength, his spirit, applying the redemptive work, applying the word of God to our hearts and our minds, sanctifying us and saving us and transforming our minds. It's his work. And I love Mark ten twenty seven says this. Jesus looked at them and said, this is in the context of the rich young ruler. He looked at them and said, with man, it is impossible. Talking about salvation. But not with God. Look at this line for all things are possible with God. I love that. That line there, with God, has been resonating in my soul recently. Lord, what are all the ways that I'm seeking to operate without you in my life? The way I'm just living day to day with my kids or overseeing the church or what would it look like for me to not sideline you and try to attempt to do what you've called me to do without you, what does it look like for me to say yes to the calling and step into the giftings and the callings that you give, the calling you've given me with you rather than without you? And oftentimes when we strive in the flesh, we get the results that the flesh can bring about. But when we when we humble ourselves, we say, God, this is impossible. Would you come? Would you do the work so you can get the glory and, and people can be saved and transformed? Then we then we start seeing uh, the kingdom of God break out. It's got to be Him. It's got to be the power of the Spirit, and nothing that we do. And the beautiful truth of this is that we can't take any credit for effectiveness of the gift, because it's God who's both given it and God who's empowered it. Right. So if we're operating, we're seeing um, lives change through our gift of service or whatever we're doing. It's just it's, it's the strength that God has provided. It's the words that He's given. All glory is due his name. We can't take any credit because it's God who has empowered the gift. And so humble gratitude, selfless stewardship, full reliance upon God, and what we overarching, what we learn about the gifts of the Spirit, is: listen, it's not about us. It's just not about us. It's about others, and it's about God's glory. It's about love. That's why 1 Corinthians 13 is in between 1 Corinthians 12 and 14 says you can, you can prophesy, you can speak in heavenly tongues, you can have enough faith to move mountains, but if you don't do it in love, it's meaningless, it's devoid of meaning, it's just a, a clashing, clanging symbol. So we do this in love and for God's glory, which leads us to verse 11, and I'll wrap up with this, conclude with this. Verse 11, look at Peter's heart, and this is our calling, church, this is our calling. In order that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory, glory, and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And so what we see here is that there's one possessor, one owner for all time of all glory and all dominion, and it's Jesus Christ. It's all owed him. All owed him. From start to finish, our lives are the story of his sovereign grace. Everything that we seek to give others, we have first uh, been recipients of from our generous God. Every gift has flown from the sacrificial atoning work of Jesus on the cross to us. He has purchased the riches of God on our behalf. So everything that we're called to give and to steward is given to us. It's empowered by him, and it's for the glory of his name. And one of the most freeing things in the world, church, as a follower of Jesus Christ, is when you and I no longer have to live for ourselves. We no longer have to call people to to follow us and Uh, Bring glory to our name, and and like us, we can we can have the same refrain of the Apostle Paul. Say, follow me to the extent that I follow Jesus. Right? It's not about me. And there's there's so much freedom there when we get to live our lives to simply point people to the one of greater worth. And it would be the height of insanity to operate and and use our gifting to point people to the fact that we're really awesome Christians or or we we know a lot when in fact we don't want to stand in the gap and, and have them uh, and have us kind of block interference, run interference for, for the people we're serving to we step out of the way and then we say, look at the glory of Jesus Christ. This is who you want to give your life for. This is who you want to uh, live for his glory and his name and his fame. I'm, I'm a nobody. I'm a nobody who just knows somebody and wants to tell everybody about him, right? And so that's what, there's so much freedom in that that everything we do is from Jesus, it's done through him and the strength he provides, and it's done for him. So the refrain of our lives and our ministry is come and see how awesome my God is. Come and see how awesome my God is. And what he's done for me, he can surely do for you. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just come before you grateful, Lord Jesus. Thank you for your word. Thank you for um, just the fact you don't leave us blind, you don't leave us in the dark, but you shepherd us through your revelation of what you want for us, Lord God. And I just pray your blessing over uh, our church in particular, the Transit Church, that for the remainder of 2020, uh, Lord Jesus, that um, you would call us to greater things. You would call us to rest in your love us to abound in prayer, to abide, to remain, to walk with you, humbly dependent and reliant upon you, that we wouldn't walk in fear, but we would walk in faith, which, which is just an accurate represent, accurate view of, of who you are, Lord Jesus. So give us more of your Holy Spirit. Give us more comfort, more love. Help us to experience, to know that. And I just, I just pray against all the lies that we have a tendency to, to believe. Uh uh, that That stop us from believing that you truly love us, Lord Jesus. So we come before you thankful that you're God of great grace, you're God of great mercy, and for any way in our lives that we're seeking to take your glory, Lord Jesus, please reveal that to us because all glory belongs to you, and we don't want to touch that, Lord God. So from leaving here prayerfully, we just ask, Lord Jesus, that your name would be glorified in our lives, be glorified in our suffering, be glorified in our nation, be glorified in our world, be glorified in this church, Lord Jesus, that your name would be great. And that in everything, that your name would be hallowed. So we love you, Jesus, and we pray this in your mighty name. Amen.